Hello, and welcome to the Global Inquirer, an undergraduate research podcast sponsored by the International Relations Organization at the University of Virginia. We use case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your new host, Balthazar Marin, and we are recording from our new studio that is courtesy of the Institute of Humanities and Global Cultures, so we thank you guys a lot for uh, letting us record here. And I'm joined by two wonderful researchers, Emmy Lockwood, a second year in global security and justice major, who also happens to be our brand new editor-in-chief. So a little round of applause for her. And Roma Chitko, a second year and global development studies major. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks for having us today. Yeah, we're excited to be here. So let's jump right in. Today we're looking at how climate change is impacting biodiversity loss, which in turn is threatening our global food security. So talking about climate change, as we all know, climate change means that the world is getting warmer. But putting it in context with our species, as the world gets warmer, the species of the world are pushed outside of the temperatures that they've become adapted to. Now, we know that evolution is a slow process. Species take generations and generations to evolve and adapt to new environments and conditions. Eight million and counting. There may be 10 or as many as 100 million forms of life on our planet. They are all bound by temperature. They all live within a temperature range. So that was Dr. Reese Halter. I had a chance to interview him over the phone uh, before we did this episode, and he had a lot of really interesting things to say about the way that climate change is affecting our planet and how that's going to affect us in the future, especially in terms of the way that we produce and think about the food that we eat. So I like that as a big picture idea, but can you bring it into a little sharper focus for us, Emmy? So climate change is progressing faster than species can evolve. Evolution is a slow process. It takes generations and generations for the animal kingdom to adapt to new environments and conditions. This being said, with climate change occurring in the last 150 years, it's just not a big enough time frame for our global species to adapt to warmer temperatures. And of course, this has a very big impact on what we eat because food comes from plants and plants are species. And it's not just that species can't keep up with the rate of climate change and the rate that temperature on the planet is changing, It's that humans have been intervening in natural selection processes that would otherwise have been taking place, especially when it comes to food production, because with all the concerns about mitigating world hunger, the agricultural industry has been primarily focused on increasing production yields. This means breeding and genetically selecting the few varieties of crops that can produce enough food to keep up with the human population. But in doing that, we've lost a lot of different varieties of crops just because they don't produce what we think is enough food. So we're actually seeing this with potatoes. Now, I'm going to be talking about potatoes in the Peruvian Andes region. Potatoes came from the Andes. And recently, because of the modern agriculture, the original potatoes, which were very diverse in the genetic pool, were replaced by the homogenous white potatoes that we see today in the grocery store. Because the biodiversity of potatoes has decreased, the potato can only grow in cool temperature ranges. 
As climate change increases the temperature of the world, potato farming must move higher up the mountain to seek cooler temperatures. Eventually, potato farming will reach the peak, meaning that there is no more land. Additionally, higher up the mountain, there is less surface area available for potato farming to occur. Yeah, if that wasn't enough, climate change affects all parts of food production, even things that we can't control or adapt for. Specifically, when I was talking to Dr. Reese about the work that he does, we talked about pollinators and how climate change is affecting them in ways that we couldn't have foreseen. So what is he doing? Scientists measure. That's our business. We measure very accurately. Atomically, we measure accurately. And what is he measuring? Bees, 20,000 kinds of bees on our planet. So the reason that Dr. Halter is studying bees is because for the first time that we know of, climate change is up there with pesticides and colony collapse for one of the leading factors in the decline of bee populations. And we need to care about this because bees pollinate around 75% of the world's major food crops, which accounts for $577 billion worth of commerce per year. And why are the bees dying at these historic rates? Climate mismatch. So scientists noticed that the high-altitude glacier lilies found in the Rocky Mountains bloomed up to 17 days earlier. Hello, Houston. We have a problem. We know that the, the, the situation now is that we have an increasing frequency and intensity of heat waves, higher temperature heat waves mm -hmm. in, in tandem with droughts. And when that occurs, you see, plants cannot flower. Well, if plants can't flower, then we really have a problem because the bees, well, the bees can't, uh, they can't cross-pollinate, they can't eat. What are the greater implications of biodiversity loss and how do they fit into some of these other global trends that we've been looking at for the past couple of seasons? So Americans have to be more conscious consumers. Our grocery stores are full of vegetables and fruits that in fact are not perennial but are imported from across the globe. For example, we can purchase tomatoes, raspberries, blueberries all year round. Whereas in their natural environments, these forms of produce have certain timelines. These species of produce are seasonal items that we should cherish when they are in bloom. Okay. I mean, I agree with all of that, and I think it's all well and good, the buy local, think global idea. Something that struck me from your interview with Dr. Reese Roma was that we are more complicit in biodiversity loss than we really think. He kept mentioning the amount of subsidies we give each year to fossil fuel companies. $5.3 trillion each year to cook our planet. Obviously, the main perpetrators of climate change and the fact that we're not doing nearly enough about climate change in the voting booth. And for me, I, I think that's where it really all starts and where it really ends. Our decisions you know, matter with who we elect. And not to get like too conspiracy theorist here, it reminds me a lot of the campaign to ban plastic straws. It is a very well-intentioned um, campaign. I think it's doing a lot of good, and it will do a lot of good. But on some level, it seems as if it's a way 
for major corporations, fossil fuel companies, the biggest polluters, you know, big industry, to shift the blame of climate change away from them and onto the consumer, making it a consumer-driven problem, you know, rather than standing up, taking the blame and saying, okay, actually it's us who creates 75% of all the pollution out there, and you're 4% from plastic straws or 0.4% from plastic straws, you know, isn't actually the main perpetrator of this issue. And to justify that point, in the United States, there are more cities that have banned the banning of plastic bags than the plastic bags themselves. So it just shows that we have to hold our government, our officials, our local representatives more accountable to combat the adverse effects of climate change and pollution. Yeah, no doubt. We're supposed to look inwards. I think that's like I said, very well-intentioned, but let's look at the main causes of these problems. In Dr. Reese Holter's interview, he had a really impactful quote. Change is opportunity in disguise. And this really resonated with me because I think our capitalist market system is based on the foundation of innovation. So if we can change the dialogue of climate change as a way to innovate, as to create new products that are ecologically safe, that are sustainable, that are healthy for everything top to bottom from the smallest plankton to the bees to the potatoes and eventually to us as consumers. So what are the solutions that we can you know, press our government officials to pursue? Solutions that will create the long-term effects that will keep us under that two Celsius threshold? So it isn't actually all doomsday scenarios. The International Food Policy Research Institute and the UN have both come out with what they call climate smart agriculture, which isn't a universal set of policies, but rather guidelines that can be used to make policies that work in a variety of different contexts. CSA aims for three outcomes, which in a nutshell are increased productivity, enhanced resilience of crops, and reduced carbon dioxide emissions. While these may seem like things that should have been done in the first place and they seem really obvious, CSA is a new concept because it combines the problems of world hunger and climate change, which were previously seen as two kind of mutually exclusive problems. But we now know that they're very, very interrelated. We can't give up food security in exchange for reducing carbon dioxide emissions. They can, in fact, both be done. Does Dr. Reese have anything to say about the issue? For every problem, there are three solutions. No-brainer. Reduce fossil fuel emissions now. Two, end fossil fuel subsidies immediately. $5.3 trillion globally, annually, to the biggest, wealthiest polluters. I just want to add a little sidebar. If the fossil fuel companies are so righteous, if they're so great, if they're so mighty, why is it that the taxpayers around our planet are paying them $5.3 trillion each year. And number three, the plan is very elemental. We need a zero combustion global economy, and we have the technology to do it with the lithium ion battery stations and the supercritical steam from solar thermal plants. We can do this. And anything else? 
mean, to be to be very candid, we can't continue procreating the way we are. We we just can't. You you know, every population of every anything reaches a carrying capacity, and thereafter, the the hammer gets uh, lowered. So humans have, have exceeded that by then some, and and now we've just got to get smart because. Uh, as I as I said earlier, it is every generation Z and millennials birthright to have clean water, fresh yeah. air, vibrant living soils, thriving ancient forests and oceans brimming with life. What are yeah. we doing? That's it for this week. If you liked the Global Inquirer, be sure to check us out on our SoundCloud for more episodes from previous seasons. If you liked this episode, drop a like, comment, or shoot us an email at uvaglobalinquirer at gmail.com. You can check us out on our social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to tune in next week where I sit down with researchers Walter Sharon and Quincy Stiles to discuss climate change refugees. See you next week.